prepare our hearts for his word. If you were with us when we began the book of Acts, you turn your attention now to chapter 13. Remember in the introduction, I, I said something along these lines, that if you were looking at Luke's gospel, and remember Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and all of a sudden the church somehow ends up in Rome, you're not going to get that from the book of Luke. You would think, well, how did it get there? We now come to the answer to that dilemma because Luke is recording now, in essence, for the next seven chapters, chapters 13 to 19, how exactly... The gospel spread from Jerusalem for its infantile beginnings, the Jerusalem church. Remember the first church was really the church in Jerusalem. How it spread from there to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it does so through the evangelistic efforts of the Apostle Paul. And so these next chapters are all about Paul's amazing ministry, this radical ministry this ministry that when you think about it, if you were to sit and map out and plan how you were going to strategically reach that region of the world, uh, you would have never done it the way that the Apostle Paul begins his missionary journeys. You have recorded in Scripture four missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and you're going to see all four of them unfold. And during that process, There is a repeat. He travels back to some cities he's already been to. Uh, He also goes to some new cities on each missionary journey. But this is the record of how God works. And so in a lot of ways, these next chapters are the history of the church, of who we are as the body of Christ, and how God uses two things. God uses, obviously, people. But God also uses specific places. And so whenever someone comes to me and they say, well, I believe God wants to use me, I will ask them two basic questions. Who do you want to reach? Who do you believe God's called you to? And where is that place? Because God, as far as the Bible is concerned, always sends us as as emissaries, as missionaries, he sends us to a specific people, and to a specific place. Very rarely does God just send people out willy-nilly. We'll just wander around and go wherever God tells you to go. Almost without exception, when there is a call on a person's life, they are called to a place, and they are called to a people. And so you're going to see that in view in technicolor in these chapters. You're going to see some 40 different cities mentioned. You're going to see... 55 or so different people. You're you're going to see every tribe and tongue and nation in the known world at that point in time uh, that is in the Roman and Greek-speaking world, anyway, as as the gospel goes forth, uh, being ministered and reached. And so we'll pick up in chapter 13. We're going to take the whole chapter tonight, uh, a long chapter. I believe we can get it. And so would you pray with me? Father, thank you. For your word, thank you for the power that it has to speak into our lives, even still today. And we pray that you would work now in this time, uh, Lord, that that we would understand perhaps the calling that you're placing on our lives. Lord, that you might call us to a city, that you might call us to a people, uh, that you might move us and use us as you will and purpose. And all along the way, as we see in these journeys, uh, Paul invested in people, and he invested in places, and may we do the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here in Acts chapter 9, as we, as we began to see Paul's conversion, uh, he's still Saul of Tarsus. And so he is the Jewish Saul. He is now going to become, in this chapter, in verse 9, he's going to now finally be called the Apostle Paul. He's going to use his Roman name. Remember that he is a Jewish man. He's a Pharisee. 
Uh, he's well studied in the law. He has tremendous history as far as the Jewish people are concerned, but God is going to use him to minister to the Gentiles. And so he's going to have a Gentile name, a Roman name. And so we'll see that tonight. In that blinding vision, remember Paul is struck blind, and it's important for us to pick it up because we've gone from 9 to 13, and he's kind of disappeared off the pages of the book of Acts. And now he comes back into view. Uh, During that time, he spent three years in Arabia. He's been ministered to by the Holy Spirit. He's been prepared. And I think it's important because God doesn't give us all the details on everything that happens with the Apostle Paul's life. But we know this. When he comes back, he's a changed man. And God does that from our perspective supernaturally. But it is highly likely that Paul was being ministered to by people. We know that Priscilla and Apollos have uh, a hand in that. We're told those names. But before his conversion, Paul had uh, one task in mind, and that task was to persecute the very people that he's now going to propagate. Uh, he, He goes from persecutor to propagator. He goes from one trying to kill people to try and make other believers himself. He goes from trying to hinder the gospel to spreading the gospel. And during the two decades of Paul's ministry, and as you look at these chapters, you're seeing about 20 years of ministry history. And and as you see Paul used in these chapters, he's going to be preaching in the Roman world. Now, the Roman world is, in essence, not hostile really towards anyone. And in fact, the Romans, for all of the bad things about the Roman government and about Roman society, there were a lot of good things about the Roman government and about Roman society. Largely, there was peace in the world, the Pax Romana. And and so wherever you went in the Roman world, there was a rule of law and a rule of order. However heavy-handed it was enforced, there was some general peace. And so the heathen emperors, the heathen Caesars, were largely responsible for setting up a world whereby the gospel could go out because they were so heavy-handed that there was so much tolerance, sound like a world that we live in today, there was tolerance for everything. And so in the Roman world, which could not have happened in a Jewish world, Uh, That's why Paul was persecuting the the Christians, because it was not allowed in the Jewish world. But in the Roman world, Paul is going to have pretty much free reign. And until he becomes a political liability to Rome, seen as a rabble-rouser, he's allowed to do pretty much anything he wants to do. And so you're going to see that history uh, begin tonight here in chapter 13. He travels on Roman roads. He drinks from Roman water sources. I mean, the, the, the staggering number of accomplishments of the Roman world, uh, you're, you're sitting in a building right now that would not exist save the invention of concrete by the Romans. Uh, we have all of our water here in Southern California, in case you didn't know, doesn't come from here. It comes from Northern California via a very simple thing called an aqueduct, also invented by the Romans. Representative form of government, including a senate. Guess who invented it? The Romans. So there's a lot of things that that Paul was actually a beneficiary. And so as he's traveling around, though he gets the call to go to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. Northern Greece is even at that time, though it was chiefly Grecian in influence, Hellenistic Jews lived there. It was still a Roman world that he was able to just kind of freely do whatever because they were so tolerant and because they were so accepting. Paul's first missionary journey uh, will begin at Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. That's going to happen in about A.D. 49. So imagine when this is. So in A.D. 32, 33, uh, Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the dead. He spends 40 days on earth. He ascends into heaven. So now we're sitting out roughly 15 years later. And, and this is the world that Paul comes into. As he begins, he's going to begin uh, there on the, on the mainland Asiatic continent, some uh, 400 miles north of Jerusalem. And if you look on a map, probably most of you, if you have a relatively modern Bible in the 
back of your Bible, there's almost always a set of at least four or five maps in there. Usually one of them is Paul's missionary journeys. And, and so you can see that he stays, in essence, on that first missionary journey, kind of around the coast of what would be modern-day Syria, Lebanon, which would have been the Phoenician Empire, which has also been overtaken by Rome, the Grecian Empire, taken over by Rome. Uh, the Ottoman Empire would come along much later, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and he's, he's going to then go to the island of Cyprus, and so when you think of the island of Cyprus, it's hard to kind of imagine that, that world and how small it is, but it's tiny. Uh, the whole area that Paul ministers on his first missionary journey would easily fit in the state of California. And so he, he's in this kind of small geographic region, so you can kind of see how God's working. He's going to give Paul an area that he works in as he builds up some of these cities which we see here, Perga, Attila, Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. All of these cities, as, as he's ministering in those cities, they're growing stronger as a group as well. And I'll give you an example of how this has worked. When Pastor Chuck first planted Calvary Chapel, uh, there when they were in the small chapel, the entire church was 32 people. And it existed in the edge of a bean field in Costa Mesa. And, and from that, moved across and, and bought what is now the campus of the, of the main church. And when Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa uh, began to grow and move and, and transform, uh, it spawned some other Calvary chapels. Those Calvary chapels were almost entirely in Orange County. And so as the word went forth and Calvary Chapel grew, it grew in a small geographic region where those churches became very strong in and of themselves. And from there, the Mike McIntoshes and the Steve Mazes and the John Corsons of the world, uh, the Rawl Reeses of the world spread out and they took over some other little geographic regions not too terribly far from Costa Mesa. And then from those geographic regions, it spread out even a little further, 10, 15, 20 miles from those areas. And before you know it, there's 1,800 or so of us around the world. Um, it happens that way rather organically. And so you see that here in the book of Acts. And so what I'm trying to get at for you is that God indeed did have a plan. And that plan was quite precise even though it looks like, from a human perspective, Paul just kind of looping around the, the Greek island of, of Cyprus, and he's kind of bouncing off the coast and taking a ship here or a ship there. God was truly moving in a very specific geographic region that would become extremely strong, and from there it would be able to support the ministry work as it grew. And so again, back to my analogy, the reason that so many churches, you would not believe how many churches, including this one, benefited from a relationship with Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa? So Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa grows. It grows financially. It grows numerically. It grows pastorally. And some of those people, places, resources, the time, the talent, the treasure goes from that church to this church. And this church then replicates the same thing. And so that is exactly what happens here in the book of Acts. You see a church become strong, and then sometimes those churches themselves retract a little bit, but the work that's been done, because it was done by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, the work itself continues to expand. About AD 50, Paul will take off on his second missionary journey. We'll see that in chapter 15. Uh, he, he's going to join up with John Mark and Barnabas. Uh, they will be on the island of Cyprus uh, without hesitation, they just start making these little forays into new areas. And, and so you'll see them reach then eventually the book that we're in on Sunday morning is written on this second missionary journey. And so the apostle will first go to Thessalonica. He'll plant that church. He'll be kicked out of Thessalonica. He'll move down to Athens. Athens, he'll minister in Corinth, which is only about 50 miles away across the Isthmian Peninsula. And so those churches begin to get stronger. And the work that Paul is doing in Athens really is inconsequential. And it's a capital city. So even in the places that Paul goes, and we find no record of much happening, there's still stuff happening. And the reason you know that is your Bible. 
by number, almost half of the books in the New Testament were authored by the Apostle Paul. By volume, about a third of the words in the New Testament authored by the Apostle Paul. And so while he's on these journeys, he's ministering to the Timothys, and he's ministering to the Tituses. He goes to the city of Philippi and ministers there, Ephesus and ministers there, Colossae ministers there. He meets this runaway uh, slave, Philemon. He begins to have these things uh, in view as he writes these books, as he's encouraging these churches in this geographic region. And so those letters, because they would have to be sent out by hand, now he can take each of those letters that we have as the books of the Bible, the letter to the church at Ephesus, could easily be read in Pisidian Antioch that's not that far away. The church at Colossae can read the letter to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi can read the letter that was sent to the church at Ephesus. And so you can see how God grounded the church through the work of the Apostle Paul. As was Paul's custom, we find uh, in Acts chapter 17, he primarily began each work in each city with people that he knew he could reach because they had some common ground. And we know who that was. That was his fellow Jews. And so he would go to the synagogue in that city, and he would begin to speak about the Old Testament. And so we see many quotes from the Apostle Paul from the prophets, from those who had spoken forth the coming Christ. That was his strategy. And so as you look at these things, by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, (coughs) excuse me, the Apostle Paul moves from the church at Thessalonica. He goes to Berea from the term that we get, the Bereans. Remember, they were more open-minded than those at Thessalonica. In other words, they sought daily the word of God. And so Paul and Silas go there. And we even see Paul going to places to where there are people who want to hear the message. And so a beautiful picture of God's strategy and how he accomplishes it. Now we see this begin to move out, and you're going to get a a history, in essence, of the church in in these various uh, churches that that are founded. Now, as is the case with almost every geographic area of the world today, there are very specific things that most areas struggle with. Uh, Here, maybe in Southern California, we could say that our biggest struggle is perhaps materialism. Maybe you might add to that, you know, kind of a hedonistic lifestyle. In some areas of the world, the main thing that they might deal with would be poverty. Uh, We deal with that as well. But you're going to see that in each of these cities, there's a specific thing that the Apostle Paul is able to deal with and, and cause people to come and, and see that Christ is the answer to each of these areas. In other words, that Jesus is the answer to what ails us in life. And so let's pick up in verse 1 here in Acts 13. And now the church that was at Antioch, where there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and notice all the names, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, a Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And remember the Herods were a family dynasty. Uh, they were all related to Herod the Great. Uh, they were Ijumeans, so they were, they were part of the tribe of Esau and Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Important word there, you can underline it, called. God calls people. And then he equips those whom he calls. Ministry is not a job. And so there is no such thing as someone just simply going and being prepared to be in ministry and thereby being ready to be in ministry. The calling is the essential part. If God hasn't called you, all the preparation in the world is not going to do a thing because it will just simply be another work of the flesh in your life. God calls, and when God calls, God equips, God appoints, God anoints, God does the work. 
And in this case, God is calling the apostle Saul, or he's going to now call him Paul. And he says, so separate out. And he calls them. And then having fasted and prayed, how many churches could learn an awful lot about ministry and how to do it if they'd simply follow this directive? Rather than getting, you know, which, again, not against such things as resumes, not against such things as, you know, well, send me your promo video. What if the church really took it heartily upon themselves to simply, if you want to know the mind of God, fast and pray? Actually seek the face of the Lord, as opposed to simply try and do things man's way. And we see a very simple process here. God had called that evidence, that calling was evident in their life. People could see it. And I've looked, been in ministry long enough now, some three decades, that as I look at people's lives, I generally can see whether God has a call on their life or not. Now, I'm not perfect in that, don't want to pretend to be so. I miss that every once in a while. I, I have seen people that I thought were called that weren't, and I've seen people that were called that I thought there is just no way on this earth that that person is called. So, not putting it on me. But I can tell you the secret to confirming that. That's the second step. That's to fast and pray. And more importantly, notice it was they who fasted and prayed. And it was of them that was involved. In other words, they were using counsel. They were not relying on one person. The elders of the church were were looking to see, is this person called of God? And then they fasted and they prayed and they sought God. That's the way we need to do things as far as the church is concerned. All the other stuff, while it can be a useful tool, the necessary part is the fasting and the praying. And then they laid hands on them and sent them away. There should be an understanding that that person is being sent. There should be a sending church for every missionary. I've witnessed around the world people who have not been sent but simply went, and it is a struggle from almost from day one. Now, it's, again, not 100% of the time. But I think if every church took up the mantle of saying, look, we're sending you, And we're going to watch you. We're going to keep an eye on you. We're going to have your back. We're going to fast and pray for you. We're going to fast and pray with you. But we are sending you. And until they come home, they're sent. And you take care of that person. Make sure that they're doing okay. Because a lot of failure comes from that abandonment uh, of that group that originally sent. There isn't a, a continuation of that work that goes on at home. And the early church was good at sending people out. And so being sent out, notice this, by the Holy Spirit. That process describes how we engage the Holy Spirit in getting these things accomplished. We have to forget there's a human part, there's a human responsibility, and there's God's responsibility. Both are in view in this passage. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so They've come down the coast along what would have been Phoenicia at the time, Tyre, Sidon, modern-day Lebanon, uh, and and there they sailed to Cyprus, which would have been directly west. And then they arrived in Salmas. On one end of the island is Salmas, on the other end is Pathos. And they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John as their assistant. Famous missionary to India, Henry Martin, once said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. Because Christ is about going out and reaching people, amen? The great commission is not stay home and make the church bigger. The great commission is go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, amen? You can't fulfill the great commission by staying home. It's an impossibility. That was the movement of the church in the book of Acts was to first minister in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, but eventually it goes to the uttermost. The the Great Commission is the uttermost part. It It has ways that it works. 
It works from the inside out, but you still need to go out. The only healthy churches that are in the world today are churches that are distinctly and decidedly missional. They're not just caring about what's going on here. They care about what's going on out there. That's why it says you are now entering the mission field as you leave the lobby. Because the mission field is not here. Most of us have come here because we already know the Lord. Most of us have come here to be built up and fed and equipped. Some come here and the gospel is preached and they're saved. But once you're saved, you become a missionary. God puts a call on your life. It may be to be a missionary in your own home. It may be a missionary down the street or around the block or in our city somewhere or in our state, but ultimately God wants to then expand that gospel influence around the world, and so he does so by being sent out. And so now they're, they're moving out, Saul and Barnabas. If you look at these five different men who were ministering in the church, um, they're, they're men only because during that period of time in the culture, men were the ones that were listed. You, you would not have publicly talked about a woman generally in mixed company. So keep that in mind in the cultural construct here. It's important. They weren't being excluded because we do have some very powerful ladies. We're going to meet several of them here in the book of Acts. So this was not exclusionary, and it wasn't saying that, well, if you're a woman, you couldn't share the gospel. It's not saying that at all. It's just simply saying that the men who had been called by God are listed here because that would have been how Paul, a Jewish man, would have recorded things. And so it's not exclusionary. Notice that they were serving as prophets and teachers in the church. Prophets during that time helped lay the foundation of the church. And I think it's important for us to understand that there are two basic meanings of the term prophet. There is the office of prophet, which is primarily the Old Testament prophets themselves. Those who were God's mouthpieces who received directly from the Lord and then distributed out to the world. And then there are those who are prophets within the church, and they can better be described as those who were foretelling. In other words, foretelling means you get something new and you speak it for the first time. But foretelling means you take something that's been said, that's truth, that already came from God, and you speak it again. And so here... When we're reading this and speaking it publicly, that is actually exercising a prophetic gift. Because I have received that, it came from God, right? And if I speak it forth, that is using a type of the gift of prophecy. We often isolate it down to things that are future tense only. And that's not how it's used in Scripture all the time. And in this case, foundationally, these men were forth-telling the things that God had already said. Hence, you find all these references to the Old Testament. Paul's going to be quoting from the Psalms. He's going to quote from Isaiah. He's going to quote from Zechariah the prophet. He's going to speak forth into the life of people a message that he's already received himself from the Lord. And he's going to prophetically then speak into their lives that way. In other words, they were chiefly proclaiming the truth of God's word. And so these cities, as, as we move through the list, when they get to, to Pathos, there's kind of a little bit of a, uh, of a uniqueness to each one of them, as I said as we began this. Uh, at first you see kind of decisions being made. They're, they're early. What do we do with this early church? Well, we need to have some people go out, so the decisions are made to send them out. At Paphos, we find uh, a new problem, and there's deception that's going on. You see, wherever God raises up someone to speak for him, pretty typically you're going to find Satan is going to raise somebody up to speak for him as well. Satan is a mimic. Satan is a liar. And he's a counterfeiter. And he's been doing that for a very long time. So usually what happens is you also have alongside of the true church, you have the false church. And we certainly have that in our world today. There are a lot of churches with another Jesus. There's the Jesus of prosperity. There's a Jesus that says, well, if you come to Jesus and if you just sow this seed gift, you know, God's obligated to make you wealthy. That's heretical. It's absolutely counter to what the Word of God plainly teaches. And yet there are churches that preach that message. And they're filled with all kinds of people because who doesn't want to be rich, right? 
So you take the gospel and you taint it just a little bit with a heretical piece of information. And in this case, it's that God wants everybody to be rich. The same was true here. Verse 6, and now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, so when you look at the island, Salmos was on one end. This is an island. It's fairly large. It's over 100 miles long if you go out to the end of the isthmus. So from the city that you would first come to on the eastern end, Salmos, to Pathos on the other end, uh, nearly 90 miles uh, of ground journey, uh, they found a certain sorcerer. Notice what it says. Very descriptive. A false prophet. A certain type of sorcerer. And the, the Greek word there is pharmakia. It, 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 it's from which we get our word drug or pharmacy. This was a man whose mind was bent, and he bent other people's minds. He twisted it. A scripture twister, you might say. A false prophet. There's real prophets and false prophets. The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18 tells us to, how to discern a false prophet. If the words that that man says do not come true, then that man is a false prophet. And so it's pretty easy to determine a false prophet. When somebody claims to speak for God and they tell you that, look, if you come to our church and you give X number of dollars, you're going to be rich and you don't get rich, guess what? False prophet. It's not that tough to figure out. And he was a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, that's an interesting thing to me. So the guy's actually either adopted son of Jesus. That's what Bar means. So he's son of Jesus. So it's like, well, I'm like, Jesus' best bud, or I'm related to Jesus, but he is a false prophet. But evidently, he's actually picking up a little bit of what's going on in the world. He says, hey, there's some bucks to be made here in this whole Jesus thing. I can tell you there are some churches that have that exact same view. There's some bucks to be made in this Jesus thing. And so we'll just tell people what they want to hear. We'll, we'll, We'll make up our own gospel We'll make it sound kind of Jesus-y. Give you one name. About six and a half million people involved in it. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Looks like Jesus. Got Jesus in his name. But they got a Jesus who's one of God's many sons. Who was actually born of flesh and blood. Who himself is not God but one of many gods of which you can become. That's why it's so attractive. You mean I can become God? Oh, yeah. Yeah, have your own planet. Have yourself all kinds of spirit wives, little concubines there in space. You see, it sounds like we use the name Jesus. got to be Jesus if you use the name Jesus. Not so much. Notice this. Who is with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man? And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, and so Elimus is the name of this guy, even though he went by Bar-Jesus, that's his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn them from the proconsul and away from the faith. And then Saul, who is called Paul, so now he's officially got a Roman name. He becomes Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus to Paul, right here in verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, here's what happens when you're full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. Now, that's a nice way to make friends. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of our Lord? You talk about a shout down. So he gets up in his grill and says, look, dude, you're a heretic. People every once in a while say, well, you know, you know, why do you say things like, you know, the Mormons aren't Christians? Because the Mormons aren't Christians. Unless you have faith in the only begotten Son of God, you can't be saved. So if God's got other kids, you've got an issue. That's why I say it. It's not because I'm trying to be mean. I'm trying to be accurate with the gospel. 
not trying to shout down somebody's belief system. There's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. There's only one Jesus. There's not another Jesus. And there are no latter-day saints. There's just saints. And so you're either part of the just saints or you're part of the ain'ts. You're either in or you're out. And so to confuse people by thinking that there's some other Jesus, you're doing exactly what this guy did, and this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says to him. You son of the devil. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed. You see, the, this was for the proconsul. Paul says, Look, this is, you're not of God. Well, I'm sorry. You're not of God. But the Roman proconsul sees whose side God's on and says, Whoever that guy's God is, that's the real one. Astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul does something that's logical. He's, he's going to go to the home of Barnabas. This is where Barnabas is from. And so again, there, there's logic mixed in this along with just the divine hand of God. And so while this deception is going on, they, they face this false prophet, uh, Elimus. His name actually means sorcerer, or it can mean wise man, but it's wise man kind of like a, a medium. Or wise man like someone who's a, 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 an actual sorcerer. And, and it's interesting to me because in view here is the very thing that Jesus gave us in, in Matthew chapter 13 when he spoke the parable of the tares and the wheat. He said the two grow up side by side. They look exactly the same. And if you take wheat when it is full and not harvestable, and a tear, full and not harvestable, they are virtually indistinguishable to anyone except a wheat farmer. They look the same. They have the same type of grain, the same type of, of grass that, that they grow from, the same fruit, the same wheat kernels. But one is wheat, and the other is a tear. And Jesus said, look, they're going to grow up side by side. You're going to find people preaching the real gospel on the other corner. You know, there's a time here in America, even in my little town, we, had, we actually had a church corner. You know, you got a Baptist church on one side, an Episcopalian church on the other, and a Presbyterian church, and then a Lutheran church on the other corner. Now, all of those churches happened to preach the real Christ, or at least did, Back in the day, those, some of those that I've just named, unfortunately, the major denominations, many of them have actually abandoned the, the authoritative teaching of God's Word. But at that time, were, those are Christian denominations. But then you come along, and like where I grew up, well, there's the Unitarian Church, the Christian Science Reading Room. Well, I mean, if it's Christian and it's science, it's got to be really good, Right? You, you, you see, they grow up right along, and they were right next door. I mean, you could walk out of El Cajon First Baptist Church, go around the corner, and there it was, the Unitarian Church. Teaching all in one God consciousness, that all religions were one. We all believe in the same God. Obviously not true. Because Allah has no son part of the tenets of the Muslim faith, right? So if God has one son and only one son, then Christians and Muslims do not believe in the same God. I wish we did. I wish that was actually true, but it's not. And so you have a group that comes along, well, why can't we just all get along? Well, in the sense that we want to love everyone, we must. But abandon the real Christ? Never. We can't. On the issue of faith and who you have your faith in, 
we have to believe on the only begotten Son of God. There is no other way. So as much as it sounds like a wonderful thing, well, we'll we'll just bring everybody in. We'll all agree to disagree. Agreeing to disagree is damning people to hell. Agreeing to accept a lie is rejecting the truth. And so Paul says, can't do it. Won't do it. And neither will we here in this church. The truth is the truth. We preach truth. Amen? And the result of this is the guy gets saved. So even though it sounds a little bit harsh, it's not. When you tell somebody the truth, you give them the truth that can set them free. You tell them a lie, you have helped them stay blind. Tell them the truth. The next church, verse 13. They go to Perga. Now, Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, so they're on the western end of the island. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. So they've come back around the island. They began on the east end, went to the west end, left the west end. They've sailed back around the island of Cyprus. They've now gone to the coast, probably Tyre or Sidon, and slightly inland to this little tiny uh, city called Perga in Pamphylia. Now, that's the coastal region uh, of modern-day Syria and Lebanon, a kind of a damp region, fairly swampy, a lot of coastal plain in there. Uh, It's the reason that some believe that Paul... Uh, received a type of eye disease that's found uh, in the grasses in that area. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So now they're back on the coast where they can actually travel on land back to Jerusalem. We find John or John Mark, and and we, we don't know why John Mark actually departs from them. We're not sure. The good news is, is that ultimately, because 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us so, there is a restoration of that relationship, and praise the Lord for that. But there was something that happened in John Mark's life, uh, and, and I believe that it may well have been that John Mark was kind of in that group that Paul wrote to in the very first of his epistles. Paul likely wrote the letter to the church at Galatia first of all of his books. And the problem with the letter to the church at Galatia, the problem in the church was uh, they were Judaizers. They believed that you needed, yeah, sure, you needed Jesus, but you also needed to keep the law. You, you kind of needed to add to the work of Christ being Jewish. And so Paul writes that letter, and I, I believe personally John Mark actually was probably involved in that particular uh, heretical view that you could add something to the work of Christ. You can't add anything to Christ. It's Christ alone. It's faith alone. It's grace alone. We, we stand alone in Christ. We're justified by our faith in Christ alone. We're going to stand before God the Father, not because of anything that any one of us has ever done, simply on the merits of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that. They move on next to Antioch in, in Poseidon. Now, there are two Antiochs. There's an Antioch in Syria. There's an Antioch in Poseidon. And so, again, just like there are two Caesareas. There is Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast, on the Mediterranean. There's Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north, in the lower uh, areas of the Golan Heights, on the Jordan River. And so it was very often that you had cities that had the same name. They were normally divided up by what was close to them or the region that they were in. So Maritima on the sea, Philippi, the city of Philip, the Macedon, uh, founded. It was a Greek city. It was actually the home of the temple of Pan. And so you can go there today and actually see the remains of the temple of Pan uh, that was worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. So the same thing here. It's a different Antioch, Antioch Poseidon. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, which is in Poseidon, and they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, and after the reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And so they travel up the Roman road about a 100 miles to the north. They're also traveling up in elevation. They're going up into the coastal mountain range about 3,600 feet. 
And so they begin to visit these strategic cities and just get the word out. And, and again, the Jewish people love God. And I, and I believe Paul's heart, because remember that we find him writing of his own countrymen. He says, I would myself that I am cut off, that my brethren be saved. I would gladly give my life if the truth could just reach the Jewish people. So there's always a hunger within the Jewish people for truth. And so Paul seized on that. That's why I would encourage you to seize on every opportunity that God gives you to minister to people who are hungry to hear what it is that you believe and why you believe it. It's one of the reasons that we do what we're doing right now is to prepare us for those meetings that God would give. And finally, we see how to preach like Paul. And as we finish off this chapter, and there's a lot of Scripture here, but it really is just three things that we see here, this incredible preparation that Paul gives for his first sermon. This is it. This is the first of Paul's sermons recorded here in the book of Acts, verse 16. And then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So they're asked, come talk to us. Tell us the truth. There's been an invite. And so the Apostle Paul seizes on this. He stands up, and and he says, men of Israel. Now, I don't know whether he was speaking in Hebrew when he said this. It was recorded. Uh, It was written down in Greek, uh, of course. And and he said, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, the God of Israel, Israel, This people chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And so he begins to give a history of Israel. He's speaking to them about common things. This is such a perfect picture of how you need to prepare the ground when you are preaching the gospel. You must find a place of commonality. You can't start by beating people over the head with every tidbit of information that you have about Christianity. You can't drag out every single thing about apologetics that you know and just ram it down their throat. You need to find some place that you can engage that person to bring them in to listen. And notice how Paul does this. And with uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And now for a time, about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now, the book of Judges gives us this picture, tells us exactly what happens. We we understand how all these things happen. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as a king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. And from this man's seed, now notice this, he's saying, do you know your history? Do you remember what you sat down with on Sabbath and your father told you these things because oral history was generally how people received it. And so this would be a story that every single Jewish person would know. They would at least have the bare bones understanding of history. And so Paul uses that. Use what people already know as a sounding board to preach the gospel. Here comes the gospel. From this man's seed, whose seed? David, of course. From this man's seed, according to the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise. That I will make you a great nation, Abraham. And from you all of the nations will be blessed. So he's saying, look, we all know the promise. And God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. His name, literally a a transliteration of Joshua, God is our salvation. After all, John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. It wasn't to the Gentiles. 
the message was preached to the Jewish people first. That's where the message first went. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. He totally plows the ground. He said, who do you think all that's about? You guys have been looking for them. You can almost see Paul's gears turning. Maybe he begins to, we don't know whether he recorded all these things exactly uh, as, as the totality of the things that were said. But maybe he went on to say, hey, you know when you guys prepare for Passover, you know that place that you set that's always left vacant for Elijah who is to come? You know who he is? His name is Jesus. He got them right where he wanted them. Then he gives a powerful declaration. Notice verse 26. Men and brethren... And again, he includes himself. When you say somebody is your brother, you're not saying it's you and us. It's we. He says, men and brethren, fellow men of Israel, fellow brothers, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. How did that happen? The law and the prophets. The prophets of old. We know more about Jesus from the Old Testament in a practical sense than we do the new. There's more details about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection found in the Old Testament prophets than there are recorded in the New Testament. The life of Jesus, while excruciatingly detailed in the Gospels, is a fairly small piece of information. We're told in the Old Testament what city he'll be born in. We're told his lineage. We're told that he'd be crucified before crucifixion was even invented. We're told that the grave could not hold him. The Old Testament said all of that. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem, their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. You see, the prophets actually said that the Messiah would be rejected. So even to that end, can you imagine Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin waking up one morning and, and the light goes on. And I have to believe because God is so good. I think it did. Now, I don't know for sure. But I know how good God is. And I, I, w- I would almost, you can nearly see it happening. They're sitting on a rock someplace and it's like, oh my. We killed Messiah. They were told. And though they found no cause in him for death, read Psalm 22, read Isaiah 53, read Daniel 9, read Psalm 16, Isaiah 7. Read those passages and and see what was said that they already knew. They asked Pilate, should he be put to death? And now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, you see, they didn't know they were doing it. If they had known that they were fulfilling all those things, they would have never done it. There's, there's no way they could have had all of that in, right at the tip of their, uh, their minds, so to speak. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Exactly as Psalm 16 said. You would think they would have been looking. And he was seen for many days by those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem. And these are the witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the glad tidings of that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this in us, their children. In that he had raised up Jesus exactly as 
it is written in the second psalm there. For you are my son to get today I've begotten you and raised him up from the dead that no more that you should return to corruption for he has thus spoken. I will give you the sure mercies of David and therefore he also says in another psalm nor will I allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. In other words, he's saying, hey, check out Psalm 16. And you read that and ask yourself a simple question. Could it possibly apply to David? And the answer is emphatically no. Because the dude's got a tomb in Jerusalem to this day. You see, he was saying, look, Messiah came. He explained all these things to them. And you have to love how he does this. He's using Psalm 2. He's using Isaiah 55. Uh, he's using Psalm 16. And, and because the Jewish people considered that psalm a messianic psalm, you can almost see him just swirling around as all this information is being thrown at him, and he's doing it in a very loving way. He's not screaming and yelling. He's just saying, look, think about it for a second. Could the 16th Psalm have been about David? And they're sitting there thinking to themselves, hmm, I think we still go over to David's tomb to this day. Matter of fact, when you travel to Jerusalem today and you go to the supposed location of David's tomb, it is an extremely holy, second only to the Western Wall. It's the second most holy place in all of Judaism is David's tomb because it represents where David supposedly was laid to rest. David wasn't raised. His bones are still there. If he's in that tomb, they're still there. And so they're going, wow. And then finally he closes by applying this whole thing. Verse 38, and therefore let it be known to all of you. You see, application is really important. You need to tell people what to do with what they just heard. This is Sermon Preparation 101. Great preparation, powerful declaration, accurate application. You want to know how to do it? There it is. You get those three things in every message, you're going to do okay. And therefore, let it be known to all of you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Through who? Messiah, Jesus. Yeshua. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not have been justified for by the law of Moses. He said, look, the law of Moses cannot do it. It never could. And it's so true, it can't. The law of Moses couldn't save anybody. Great guideline, outlined much of the character and nature of God, gave you a clear picture of what God expected, but it provided no power to overcome sin and death. None. Zero. Even on the Day of Atonement, you were still dead lost in your sins. The moment you got done, you already began to rack up for the next year. Beware, therefore, lest there's been spoken in the prophets to come of you. Behold, you despisers who marvel and perish. In other words, you see it, but you don't believe it. You don't do anything with it. It's what you do with the truth that matters, Amen. Truth is always truth. By its nature, it must always be true. Do you understand that? If something is definitively true, then it's always true. And so if something is declared as true, and you say with your mouth, that's truth, then you're obligated to do something with it. Well, they believed that Messiah would come. And Paul has now explained to them, look, you might want to read your Bible, Messiah came. And oh, by the way, he's the one that actually provided the righteousness that the law couldn't provide. He says, for I work a work in your days, and I work with a work which you by no means believe, though one of you were to declare it. Remember, we're going to get to Acts chapter 16. 
We're going to get to Luke chapter 6, and we'll study that. And you're going to see how the truth can be there, and people just have to choose whether they're going to believe it by faith or not. And so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, and the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath, they're like, man, this guy's on to something. They're begging him to come back and preach another message. And now when the congregation had broken up, many Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. You see, that's what the truth does. You don't need to manufacture anything. The truth is sufficient of itself to get people to listen. It's amazing how many people will will talk about the Bible. When I was in in Granada in Nicaragua, we were walking down a walking street, and people wanted to know, you know, why are you here? I just told them, well, I'm a pastor. I'm here to, well, why did you come down here? I said, well, to to teach the Bible. You you mean the, the, the Bible that they have in the Catholic Church? I said, yeah, yeah, it's pretty much the same one. He said, oh, well, we never hear any messages out of that. It's always some homily. It's something. I said, well, it's the Word of God that you want to hear. We just teach the Word of God. They're like, oh, well, we've got to talk to our priest about this. So I'm probably in trouble down there. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. And they opposed the things spoken by Paul. You see, when you get ingrained in a religious viewpoint, it's tough to leave. One of the things that's definitive about all cults is there's a very difficult exit process. Why? Because your whole identity gets wrapped up in what you believe. And if you believe something long enough and all of a sudden the light comes on, sometimes you still abandon the truth trying to hang on to what you've manufactured over decades. And so you've got to be careful what you believe. And if you believe it, you need to really believe it. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, notice he says, we're not judging you. You're judging yourself. You just heard the truth. You're rejecting the truth. It's on you. It's not on us. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you the truth. There is only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. I know it is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, period. That's the message. You may not like it. It may not be inclusive enough for you, but that's the gospel. For the Lord has so commanded us that I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to all the ends of the earth. And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed unto eternal life believed. But the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. And the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And they shook off the dust from their feet and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. You you see, the word still got out. What was the result? Well, yeah, God was using, in essence, the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous. That happened. And they're mad. It's like, I can't believe it. But the truth still got out. You know, it's okay if people don't necessarily like you as long as you're loving in the delivery of the truth and you speak the truth because at some point in time, God can use the truth. If you tell them a lie, God can never use the lie. But if you tell them the truth, you don't know what's going to happen. They may be sitting on a beach someplace. They may be on vacation. They might be taking a bike ride, walking their dog, and all of a sudden the light goes on because you told them the truth. And it might be there that they give their life to Jesus. May we be so bold and never get discouraged from the mission, no matter how fruitless it looks like it might be. Your job is to simply preach the truth, simply. Let people know the truth so that the truth can set them free. Amen? 
Anthony and the team's going to come back up. We are late. We just uh, finished an entire chapter, 52 verses. And so we're going to close in song. God is good, amen? Would you stand? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for the power of it. May we be so bold as to preach the truth in love. We're grateful for how you use us. We're grateful for the way that the truth works in people's lives. And we pray that we'd never be tempted to do anything save share that same truth. God, give us wisdom as we do it and joy as we do it and love as we do it. Would your word penetrate the hearts and minds of the hearers? Lord, as we have opportunity, as you call us, Lord, in that great mission field, would you use us for your glory? We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.